Morning again. Thanks, Paul, for leading that time of prayer. Uh, this morning, we do continue our series uh, in James. Um, our series is titled Faith That Works. Faith That Works. Uh, we're asking what it means to have both an effective and fruitful faith, uh, one that leads to good works, one that glorifies God, uh, one that pleases God in light of all that God has done and is doing in our lives. Over the last few weeks, we've been taking time to think about a number of different aspects of faith. So we thought about a servant faith, uh, a suffering faith, an expectant faith, a perceptive faith. And I would just encourage you, if you've not had a chance to listen to any of those messages, I might be biased, but if you've not had a chance to listen to those messages, I would encourage you just to listen to those and just to take time to hear how it is that God is speaking to us uh, as a church family. Um, I hope if you have listened that you have been fed uh, by those times, as I personally have been fed. And this morning, as we continue this series, we're going to focus on what it means for you and I to have an enduring faith. An enduring faith. So if you have your Bibles, let's have a look at James. James chapter 1 and verses 12 to 15 from the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. The words are going to be up on the screen as well. So let's take time just to, to hear what it is that God has to say to us through this passage. So James says this, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Amen. May God bless, may God bless the reading of his word uh, today. Um, of course, as we think about an enduring faith, uh, this subject of trials is not new to us. Um, not only is it not new to us in this series, uh, this is a subject we've looked at in some depth already. Um, it's, not new it's also not new to us within our own lives. Um, we know that we have moments and seasons and sometimes longer periods, even years, of trial and hardship and pain and difficulty and confusion and suffering. This is the reality of life. We can all testify to this within our lives. I'm under no illusion, um, but there are some of you here this morning, perhaps many of you, um, who are in the middle of a trial right now. Um, some of you are going through a difficult time. And maybe that's, maybe that's a, an understatement. Some of you are going through what might be described as a really difficult time, a really difficult season of suffering. Uh, some of you quite possibly find yourself feeling so overwhelmed. You do not know how to move forward in life. There's a very good chance for some of you here this morning what it is that you're going through, this particular burden and trial is not known by anyone or very few people within your life. Let me just say, as we have said already and on many occasions within the life of this church, you're not and never will be defined by your trial. You are not and never will be defined by the particular trial that you face. And if that is true, which it is, then do not let yourself be defined by your trial. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to then live that out day after day. You know, I can think of a particularly difficult time 
in my own life. And it was so bad, I was struggling to think straight, to function properly. I was in the midst of a trial. I was in this lecture, and the lecturer was sharing uh, something of, of describing the process of suffering that we can go through. Uh, and he said that the suffering that we can go through, in one sense, is similar to the process that a caterpillar goes through as it transforms into a butterfly. The process, does anyone know what the process is called? Chrysalis, yeah. Uh, it's called the chrysalis. My lecturer was highlighting that when the caterpillar is in the cocoon, the darkest moment for the caterpillar, which is darkest in a literal sense, the caterpillar is in that cocoon. This, in fact, is the optimum moment of transformation for the caterpillar. For the caterpillar, it has to get into a dark environment in order for the transformation to become a reality. And it was in that moment, I sat in this lecture and I really sensed God was saying to me, this is difficult for you right now. It's difficult, but this is a moment of transformation. I'm working in the midst of your suffering. Doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like there's any way forward. And yet, this is my perfect plan. I'm at work. I'm changing. I'm, tr I'm transforming you. It's the same for every single one of us this morning. You might feel like you're in this dark cocoon of hopelessness. But you can be certain this is exactly where God wants you to be. This is your optimum moment of transformation. You can be fully confident that this darkest of moments is a precise location where his power will be at work within your life. His power at work to transform you. His power to make you more and more like Jesus. So much so that when the cocoon opens up and the season of trial is over, you will look back on what you've been through. And my hope and prayer is you will look back and you will say something similar to this. I'm no longer the same person. The difference to who I was, to who I am now, is the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. And it's in that sense and in only that sense that you can be thankful and you can rejoice in what it is you go through. This is what we've shared already in the book of James. So we looked at James chapter 1 and verses 2 to 4. And in James 1, 2 to 4, we see something similar to our passage today. So James says this, and it'll be up on the screen for us. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let me just invite you to take hold of these words again this morning. Despite what it is you're in the middle of, something good is surely coming of it. Take hold of that. You can consider it a great joy because faith in your trial is producing endurance. Your endurance is producing spiritual maturity and not just spiritual maturity. But what does James say here? He says a completeness, a completeness in Christ. Without question, as you let God take your hand through this trial, you'll be someone who lacks nothing. You'll have everything you could ever need. All because of Jesus and all because of how it is he's working within your life. As we continue on in James 1, you might remember that he then gives us call for wisdom, verses 5 to 8, which is what TJ looked at a few weeks ago. Wisdom for all of our lives. Wisdom in the midst of the trials and hardships that we face. Wisdom that enables us to move forward in the plan and purpose that he has. Despite what it is that we see, 
we can have wisdom and look beyond the circumstance and see how God is at work. Praise God. Praise God that he wants to shower us with his wisdom today in the midst of our suffering. And if you remember what it is we looked at last week, verses 9 to 11, James wants us to carry this eternal perspective, not to look just at this life, but to look beyond this life and the life to come and all that God has planned for us. One that looks beyond what we see and looks towards this incredible life to come. One that recognizes a perceptive faith as an eternally minded faith. So as we think about our passage this morning, we can recognize that what we're looking at, it's almost like a combination, a blend of the last three weeks' messages. James is calling us to endure in the midst of a trial. He's calling us to receive God's word with wisdom. And he invites us to be eternally minded as we think about our life and what it is that we're going through. So without question, without question this morning, God is turning you and I into spiritual butterflies. We're becoming more and more like Jesus when we actively rely on him and we choose to endure. And through endurance, we can be certain that he is preparing us for eternity. One where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more sin, no more suffering. I'm really excited by that. I hope you are too. C.S. Lewis, after his wife Joy had been diagnosed with cancer, was writing to some friends about how it is that they as a family were coming to terms with this news. And in his letter to these friends, he wrote this. We have no doubt the Lord is going to be good to us. We just don't know how painful that goodness is going to be. Now, you can be certain this morning that in your suffering, the goodness of the Lord in your life in the midst of that suffering is not the pain and suffering in and of itself. The goodness of the Lord is what it is that God is doing in the midst of your pain and your suffering. His transforming power, his peace that surpasses all understanding, him at work in your life so that you can more and more trust in him and become more and more like Jesus. It's what God is doing in the midst of it. It's not the pain and the suffering in and of itself. This is what James is getting at in verse 12. So James says in our passage in verse 12, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So the goodness is rooted in the fact that a person is blessed. The person is blessed. James here is using a sentence formula, which is common in our Bibles, both in the Old and the New Testament. So we find this in Psalm 1, in verse 1. It's not up on the screen for us, but we'll just read this. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist says, blessed is a person who is and who does this. We also see it in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So James uses a sentence formula as a way of tapping into rich biblical heritage. That phrase really is a means of both encouraging and challenging us. As the psalmist says, Blessed, as our Lord Jesus says, blessed, James also says, blessed. And it's a challenge and an encouragement to us. He wants us to see what it is that he says carries weight. 
it carries weight. We should take seriously the encouragements that he brings here. Let me just say too, when James says blessed, he's not saying happy. And which is what some translations will say in this passage. And the word happy is a, is a good word. It's a biblical word. God calls us to be happy in the biblical sense. But in James 1.2, James 1.12, the more accurate word to use is blessed or blessed. Because James wants us to see there's an objective reality and not a subjective experience behind what it is we go through within our lives. So there's a biblical truth that we can grab with both hands as we endure the storm. Sometimes that's all we have. We face this trial. Nothing's making any sense. Everything we try and do to fix this problem is, is going wrong. And all we have is God's word, a subjective reality. We hold on to God's word. We pray to him and we ask that he will be at work. All we can do is take one step forward and God works out the rest. Let me just throw in another caveat this morning. James is not saying here, blessed is the one who has a trial. It's not what James is saying. We're not Christian masochists. We don't think our suffering and trial in and of itself is a good thing, which is what we've touched on already. Have a look at what James says here. He says, blessed is the one who responds in a certain way in the midst of a trial. Blessed is the one who responds in a certain way in the midst of a trial. And that responding in a certain way is the call to, to what? To endurance, to endure. In the midst of the overwhelming burdens of your life, this is your call today. God is calling you. God is equipping you. God is empowering you to endure. That should bring tremendous comfort. He doesn't just say, respond to your trial in this way, Mark. And then he leaves me to my own devices. God doesn't do that. No, he says to me, I understand, Mark, what you're going through. I'm with you. I'm with you as you go through it, what we touched upon already in our service. I'm going to give you everything you need to go through this. And better still, there's this amazing reward after you have been through this test, after you've faced this trial. There's this reward both in this life and in the life to come. In this life, we get to become more and more like Christ and we know him in a deeper way. And in the life to come, we have eternal life in all of its fullness. What a saviour we have. He doesn't let our suffering go to waste. He wants to use our suffering in a way that we are transformed and renewed. Now, as we dig deeper into verse 12, let me just say, there's no guarantee that you will endure. There's no guarantee. That should be obvious. This is something that James touches upon in verses 13 to 15. But you can know for certain that today you have both the opportunity and the power to endure. As you look to Jesus, as you fix your eyes in Christ, you have the opportunity and you have the power to endure. So what is this word endurance? What does it mean to be someone who loves the Lord and then endures? Well, it's the same word that James uses in verses 3 to 4. It's a Greek word, hypomenai, hypomenai. I think I've said that right. It could be translated as perseverance or steadfastness. Some translations will use the word persevere or steadfast. It's a word that's found throughout our New Testament. Just to give you one example, John uses hypomenai in Revelation as Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus. And in Revelation 2, verses 2 to 3, Jesus says these words to this particular group of believers in Ephesus. Jesus says this, I know your works 
your labor and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered. You have endured hardships for the sake of my name and you have not grown weary. So this is Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. And here we have a living example of what it looks like to endure and the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of hardship. We endure, we persevere, we are steadfast according to Revelation 2 for the sake of his name, for the sake of his name. His name. And in doing that, the suffering that we face is no longer about us. And that's the most tempting thing, is it not? When we suffer, we make it about us. Our focus is inward and not outward. But instead, in this passage, the suffering that these Ephesians face is about God at work in the midst of their suffering. All of which prepares them and prepares us for eternity and enables us to be more and more like Jesus in the present. And enduring faith, and enduring faith. Let me just ask you today, do you long for that kind of faith? Do you long for that kind of faith to be central in your life? Do you recognize the need for endurance? Do you understand the importance of endurance? Are you aware of the power of endurance? We live in a society that avoids this word. This is an ugly word in our culture. And yet, so opposite to scripture, this is a virtue. This is something that we are called to be. Something we are called to live out. All of which, without question, will aid and strengthen you in this thing we call life. When we choose to endure, we are aided and we are strengthened. So to have an enduring faith does not mean that we live in denial. We don't live in denial to what it is we face. To endure is not an ignorant faith. We're not avoiding the circumstances and situations and pains and sufferings of our life. To endure in the faith is to have a full and complete understanding of what it is we face. And at the same time, in the midst of that knowledge, we choose to look to the one who can help us, the only one who can help us in the midst of our suffering. So we recognize, this is what I'm going through. We recognize that in all its fullness, but we also recognize above that, God is greater. God has a bigger plan in this. God is going to help me in my time of need. Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in London. Uh, his ministry impacted millions as he faithfully shared the gospel. Spurgeon would preach to thousands each Sunday. His sermons were mailed around the world in the 19th century. And at the height of his ministry, Spurgeon was someone who experienced physical pain and deep depression. And he once described these experiences of, of depression it was like punching the fog, just this darkness he was punching and he couldn't see any way forward. But he didn't grow weary, didn't let go of any of his pain. He turned to the one who would help him. He didn't let his pain go to waste. And this is how he understood the trials of life. He said this, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have, that I've got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours may almost lie in a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just a word. 
for ministers. Affliction is the best furniture in your house. Suffering and trials and hardship is the best book in your library as well. As you endure in the midst of what you face, your trial will keep you close to Jesus and your trial will help you become more and more like him. So what a privilege it lies before you for God to be glorified within your life through the spirit-filled endurance that God wants to give you. The spirit-filled endurance that James speaks of in, first, in James chapter 1 and verse 12. The one who endures is blessed because as we continue to read the second part of verse 12, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. He will receive it. And us standing the test is coming through that trial with an endurance reflecting in the fact that we are still loving, for, loving Jesus, we're still living for him with all that we are. James says that the result of this kind of endurance is one where we will receive a crown of life that God has given to those who love him. So what is this crown of life? Have a look at what Blomberg and Mariam state in a commentary on James. They say this, this is not a royal crown, but the laurel wreath that was given to winners in athletic competitions, including the Olympics. The genitive is best taken as appositional, the crown which is life, rather than descriptive of the actual wreath, the living crown, because the prize for which Christians strive is eternal life, Revelation 2.10. In other words, the crown that James speaks of here, he speaks of the crown of life, it's descriptive. It's a symbol of what God has in store for each one of us. The crown is representative of something greater. James is using symbolic language to highlight the fact that eternal life is partially experienced now in the midst of the suffering. But alongside all of that, eternal life will come to its completion in glory when we die and we are in the Lord's presence. So the crown of life is speaking of eternal life, both now and forever. Jesus says in Matthew 24, in verses 13 to 14, and it'll be up on the screen, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Our endurance is a clear sign that we love the Lord. He is with us and we are looking to him. So I wonder this morning, in light of all of that, are you enduring? Are you enduring? Are you remaining steadfast in him? Are you looking beyond the seen? And are you looking towards the unseen? As the particular trial feels overwhelming and discouraging, the more difficult our lives are, the more and more we should be looking upwards and trusting in the one who's going to help us. James presents us with this pathway of endurance and trust in God as the way, this is the way forward for each one of us. Let's not live in denial today. There's potential within each one of us to not endure, to go our own way and to do our own thing. And in verse 13, James highlights one of the ways that we respond sinfully to our hardship. And in highlighting this response, understand he's not necessarily shifting topic. So he's not talking about trials and then moving on to this different subject of temptation. He does, in fact, link these together. And this is true. We all recognize this. I hope we recognize this in our own lives. He wants, to see, he wants us to see that we are often tempted when we undergo trials. We experience temptation, and the foundation of that temptation is trial. So I'm certain 
This is true for each one of us. We all know that when we are at our weakest, this is the moment we're most vulnerable to sin. This is often the, mo the moment where we fall short of God's standard for us. So as the famous hymn says, have we trials and temptations? So yes, we do have trials and we do have temptations. And the temptations are often as a result of the trials. Douglas Moo in his commentary on James says this about the connection between trial and temptation. He says, financial difficulty can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question God's justice or even his existence. Thus, testing almost always includes temptation, and temptation is itself a test. Persevering under the trial, verse 12, demands that we overcome these kinds of temptations. So James highlights one particular way that we are tempted in the midst of the particular and peculiar moments of suffering. Instead of trusting God, we choose to blame someone or something else. And here James says that one of, one of our most common flesh responses is to blame someone with a capital S. There's no doubt about it. We love a blame game. When we face our trial, when we are tempted, and when we succumb to that temptation, we often blame God or we blame someone else. This is what happened in Genesis 3. Adam blamed Eve. That woman you gave me. We do the same. We do it a lot. We need to recognize that as sin and confess our sin before God. So we feel the power and lure of temptation in our trial. And as James highlights, we can so often blame God for this. We can say, I've got no other option. I've got no other option than to give in to this temptation. So in light of this, James warns his readers. And have a look at verse 13. He says this, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So James wants us to understand that this kind of blame game towards God for the temptation we face is absolute nonsense. As we see from his words, there's not a single trace of tempting power within God. It's not who he is. It's not what he does. Therefore, we should not think that our temptation is rooted in something that God is doing in our lives. There's a simple and yet powerful reason why God doesn't tempt us. If the starting point is temptation, then the destination is death. Death in this life and death in the life to come. And this cannot and never will be God's plan for our lives. To say that God tempts us is to say that God sins. And it's to say that God does not have his very best for us, all of which is lies. It's to say that God is leading us through the sinful journey of verses 14 to 15 in our passage. So again, have a look at what James says in this final part. James really unpacks this process of temptation and sin. So he says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So the picture that James presents us with here, it's a picture we actually find in fishing. How many fish? Just me and Johnny. Um, so you've got the bait in fishing. You've got the hook. And you have the line. 
And the bait normally has something shiny or attractive to it to make it more appealing. So the fish is drawn to this bait because in its flesh it wants to have this food. And as soon as the fish bites down into the bait, it's caught in the upper mouth by the hook. The fish is no longer free. It's bound to the fisherman's line. It has literally just bit into its own death penalty. And this is exactly what happens when we give in to temptation. We're drawn to this shiny thing, this flesh desire. When we bite into it, whatever form that may take, we're no longer free. We're bound to Satan in some way. And when we bite into it, the destination is one that's characterized by death. Temptation leads to enticement, as James says. Enticement leads to, to desire. Desire leads to conception. Conception leads to sin, and sin leads to death. Take this seriously, Denison Baptist Church. Take this seriously. Sin has a huge eternal consequence for our lives. And we are supposed to be new creations. We're supposed to say no to the temptations. If your life is defined more by your own sin and flesh desires and less by his grace and power, there's every chance you've not fully understood what it means to follow Jesus. Temptation is not to sin. The temptation is in fact something that a sinless saviour faced. God offers to empower us in the midst of the temptation that we face so that he may actually take the temptation and use that temptation as an opportunity to trust him with all that we are. So see this as an opportunity. If you are tempted today, Temptation is not sin. If you are tempted, see this as an opportunity to trust Jesus. You might feel overwhelmed by the temptation, but understand that God is with you and God wants to use that to make you closer to him so that you might know him in a deeper way. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, this is key for us, with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. He will provide a way out for you so that you can bear it. Let these words be your testimony today. God is faithful. As we are tempted, look to him. Trust in him. As we close this morning, let me just ask you this question. It'll be up on the screen for us. In your moment of trial, <clears throat> Will you endure in his power and trust in him? Or will you blame his ways and sin against him? This is very much a summary of this passage. Will you endure and trust? Or will you blame and sin? And sin. There is only one way forward for us this morning. So let's be a people who have an enduring faith. Uh, this morning... As we now respond, we want to create space just for God to be at work uh, in our lives. And I'm aware of the fact that perhaps you've never made Jesus Lord of your life today. You can choose to follow him today. You can choose to make him Lord. You can recognize your sin and you can recognize that God is faithful and God is going to help you in the midst of your sin so that you are cleansed, you become a new creation and you have a new desire to honor him and live for him. If that's you, I would invite you just to speak to myself or someone who you know and trust who loves Jesus 
And we would count it a privilege to pray with you that you may experience God's grace in a very clear way. Uh, perhaps this morning you're going through a trial right now. As I said at the start, I'm under no illusion that many of the trials and hardships we face are often hidden. We choose to, to hide these and masquerade these, these trials and difficulties in various ways. Let me just say God will help you in your time of need. There is opportunity this morning to receive prayer for what it is you face. And I recognise it's not always easy in the west of Scotland to be open about what we're facing and what we're going through. But this is church. We're not west of Scotlanders. We're Christians, followers of Jesus. That's our identity, not where we're from. So God calls us to be open and to receive prayer and to share our burdens with one another. This morning, you may also want to receive prayer for healing. So we do worship the God who can and who does heal. There's no guarantee or promise he will heal, but we will commit your situation to the Lord. And in faith, we will ask that God will heal you from whatever it is you face. So again, if you would like to receive prayer for that, then do speak to us. And as we worship, we come to this table. When we look at this table, I hope you see, I hope you see God's abundant love uh, towards you. Through this table, we see that Christ did not give in to temptation in the midst of his trial. What better example of an enduring faith than our Lord Jesus Christ, who said these words in Matthew 26 and 39 in the Garden of Gethsemane, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. May that be our prayer today. May we come to this table and say, God, not what I will in my life, but what you will. I want to surrender my entire life to you. As we take this bread and drink this cup, we are declaring God's goodness and faithfulness towards us. His body was given for you and for me. His blood was shed for you and for me. We take this bread, we drink this cup, and we say, thank you, Jesus, for how faithful you have been. And thank you that you have this incredible plan for my life. It doesn't matter what I face in life. You are working things out so that I can have peace and I can know your power in every situation. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, as often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. We take this cup and we are declaring that Jesus will one day return. And there's nothing more incredible than that. So let's have this eternal perspective. Let's, let's endure for God's glory. And let's endure in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's not be surprised by our trials and hardships. Let us see those opportunities as moments where we can trust God with all that we are. And we can recognize that in the midst of our suffering, God is changing us. God is making us more and more like his son. Let's pray together. So Father, we, we thank you that, that nothing goes to waste in your economy. That you want to use every moment, every situation, every season for your glory. And we pray, Lord, that in the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be open to how you might use the difficulties of our life. And we would also be obedient. Lord, help us to resist temptation. Lord, help us to recognize that temptation is not right. We rely on you and you fight for us. 
on our behalf. So by your spirit, Lord, would you take this time of worship and use it for your glory. May we be changed and equipped as we go into this week. And may we have opportunity after this service to have fellowship and to pray for one another, to encourage and to bless each other. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would go before us in all of these ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.